นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนัมสามิแต่ 
that cool, that inner cool. So heeding that inner cool to actually feel for what is it that we're longing for, what is it that we want. We're not meditating because somebody told us to. There isn't any external authority saying, thou shalt meditate 40 minutes a day or else. But one's drawn inwardly out of interest. And we don't necessarily even know what it is that feels hungry. We can say it's the heart, but they say, well, what is the heart? Now, the mind, you can say the mind feels hungry. And we can gratify the mind's hunger with, with information and ideas and fantasies. But I think there's a there's a deeper level of hunger. And so we, we talk about the heart, the deeper place within us that that there's longing for something. Well, actually, we don't even need to know what the heart is. But we do need to go to that place inwardly. That place that when we, when we close our eyes and we reverse the light of attention, when we reverse the light of attention, what we encounter is our own hearts. That's where we go. Normally the light of attention is being sent out through our eyes into visual objects, through our ears to sound objects, and through our bodies to sensations and so on. And through the, the sense organs, our attention is sent out. Or when we reverse the light of attention and go inward, what we encounter is our own hearts. And in the beginning, Often it's the case, for most people it's the case, that we get quite confused. You say, well, well what, what, what do we do with this? And, and if the teacher says, oh, well, if you make your heart peaceful, then you'll feel better. And so they say, well, how do you make your heart peaceful? How do you make your mind peaceful? And say, well, you concentrate on the breath, or you concentrate on a mantra, or these various techniques. And, and so we do it for a while, and maybe we do discover that that we, the mind can become peaceful. And the first time we discover it, the first time we discover what it's like to have a, a really peaceful heart, where, where all the movement and activity stills, it's a wonderful moment, and there's a, a, a real shift in understanding of, of what spiritual life means. Perhaps up until that point, we, we've assumed that spiritual life meant following all sorts of instructions or beliefs or injunctions or commandments or rituals and practices. But when we come to experience for ourselves what it's like when our attention drops a level, 
into a deep stillness. And we feel a shift in perspective on what we've previously thought was me. But now we can actually see there's only one limited aspect of me. All this activity, all this movement that previously defined me, these feelings, these thoughts, these memories, these fantasies that previously defined me from from the perspective of, of deep stillness, we start to see, well actually these are not really me at all. Then the aspects of me, or aspects of whatever I experience myself to be, but there's much more to me than this. And so then the teachings that we've heard, the, the Buddha's teachings and from the various meditation teachers that encourage us to to let go of the activity of our mind, then we start to understand what it means. Previously, we thought it was somehow we had to readjust or manipulate our minds so that we got rid of certain things. But from this perspective of stillness, we can see, well, actually, it's not a matter of getting rid of anything, but rather it's experiencing a change in the way we relate to the contents of our minds. The activity of our hearts are not something that have to define us. And with the arising of such a fresh perspective, such a way of seeing, there is certainly a, a kind of nourishment takes place. A really good feeling, a really good feeling comes up naturally from that shift in perspective. A feeling of fullness, whereas before one may have felt, felt like I'm lacking and I've got to do something to make myself whole. I'm, I'm somehow you know, damaged or deprived or you know, short of something busy striving to get that thing that's going to make us whole. From the perspective of deep stillness, where the mind becomes really calm, there's an intuitive recognition of the way the mind is that has with it the actual body-mind experience of fullness. And then we can understand doesn't matter. Somebody tells us you're right or wrong, it doesn't matter. You know. You know for yourself, oh, this is the benefit of practice. Just the same as, you know, when you're hungry and you eat and you know, oh right, this is this makes me feel full, this makes me feel good. You know, you have a good meal and you feel really comfortable afterwards. It doesn't matter if somebody comes along and says, Oh, you know, you need some more food or you know, you're not full yet and you know. So what is it that we're full of? Again, it's like, it's like trying to say, well, what is the heart anyway? We can't actually say what the heart is, but we can study its activity and we can study its stillness. We can observe it. And in observing it and observing it regularly, there is the natural dawning, the natural arising of understanding. So sometimes this understanding is, is, is um, compared to light. And so you say the, 
the mind is full of light. It's a metaphor for understanding because it comes with clarity. And you're fumbling around in the dark. You know what it's like when you, you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom or something and you're in a strange house and you don't know where the light switch is and you, you're fumbling around and you kick into a chair or you bang against the door or, or something and you don't know where you're going and it's difficult and you're confused and you know maybe like myself recently traveling around the world you wake up and you don't even know which country you're in I mean, which city is this which side of the planet am I on and and then you find lights which you turn and say oh right yeah, oh, yeah right okay Sydney yeah okay Sydney this guy's house in Sydney right now where was the bathroom well anyway now you can see there's light and we can see and we feel good when we can see where we're going. Now, this feeling good arises naturally in the heart, in the mind, for ourselves. Not because somebody gives us a bit more information, but because there is an actual shift in appreciation of our inner reality. You read it in the scriptures, and if you practice meditation long enough, you can or appropriately enough, you can come to experience for yourself the experience of this arising of an inner recognition which dispels the fear of darkness. So rather than meditation being some exercise that we perform because we're told we should or or in keeping with some belief system that if we adhere to it then it'll protect us from you know, some unfortunate future. Meditation is really a journey into the inner unknown. It's a recognition that we have within us a natural and native instinctual interest in discovering for ourselves what's going on inside there. Sadly, uh, there are a lot of teachings around that will undermine that interest and could well tell us that there's something wrong with that interest and, and would tell us that actually our interest, our tendencies to want to inquire and ask questions uh, really are unhealthy and, and what we should do is listen to people who know better than we are and we do listen to the experts on the great mysteries of life and believe in them and of course you know, when that is what happens then those experts have a lot of power over us and, and can make a lot of money out of us and that's not that's certainly not what the Buddha was teaching in fact he quite expressly spoke out against heedlessly or quickly believing in what so-called experts on the great mysteries of life, so-called spiritual experts tell us. And he encouraged questioning. He encouraged listening inwards to find our own questions and asking those questions. Asking them of ourselves, yes, and asking them of those who who uh, are practicing longer than we have, but not projecting out onto those people the authority to tell us what the truth is. 
There's a great story in the scriptures where the Buddha is given a, a discourse on, on the profound teachings and then he turns to his right-hand man, Venal Sariputta, and asks him, you know, what do you think of what I've just said, Sariputta? And Sariputta said, well, I'll take it away and think about it, Lord. And the Lord said, very good, Sariputta, that's, that's what I want to hear. He didn't, he didn't want a yes man as his right-hand man. He, he encouraged, really encouraged inquiry. Now, we have these questions. We're born with these questions, actually. We don't necessarily recognize them early on in life, and perhaps it, it's, it's somewhere around about adolescence before we really start to feel the validity of these questions, really feel them. I mean, we might ask them as children, and mostly our carers give us you know, fairly quick answers to these things, and then we just get on and play with something else. But then around the time of adolescence, we... Maybe we come across something like death, and that brings up big questions. We fall in love, that brings up a big question. You know, you get taken over by this power, this force of falling in love with somebody else. You feel like you can't live without somebody. Or feeling threatened, you know, through some sickness. Anyway, what happens in these life experiences is real questions arise for us. And so, what what matters in life anyway? You know, what's what's important? Like, for instance, if well, what's happening right now for the world is this this uh, unfortunate, tragic unfolding in the Middle East yeah. when war comes along and people feel threatened and. Or if you lose, if you feel the risk of losing something, like your safety. And the question arises, well, you know, what's important anyway? Or if you feel threatened with losing your health, what's important anyway? Everything, you can lose everything. Everything's changing. And, and then the great doubt arises. And the great doubt is the beginning of the spiritual life. Many people will say that, that faith is the beginning of the spiritual life. I think it's doubt that's the beginning of the spiritual life. When the great doubt arises, they say, well, what, what is this about anyway? What's important? Previously, I used to think that, you know, getting around, having fun, being young, being healthy, you know, somebody's looking after us, you know, government's just taking care of things, or mum and dad are taking care of things, or got a nice girlfriend, or a nice husband, or nice children, whatever, and then suddenly, kapow, we get smacked with something and the doubt arises, what is this all about? Now, from the perspective of Buddhist teaching, this doubt is a great gift, this doubt is a blessing. This is where we open up to, to a position, we, we are afforded the perspective on life where we don't feel sure anymore. On so many occasions, the, the Buddha gave the teachings on everything is impermanent. Everything that arises ceases. Everything that's born dies. Over and over again, he talked to the monks and said, when you see somebody's, somebody has died, stop and look at it. Or a dead animal, stop and look at it, contemplate it, contemplate death and, and reflect that this is going to happen to you too. And hopefully, it'll give rise to this, this question, say, well, what matters anyway? What lasts anyway? What's important anyway? 
if we're all going to die, if we're going to lose everything anyway. And it could happen any time. So from the Buddhist perspective, when there's doubt, this question arises, this is not a, a sign of something going wrong. This is not necessarily some sort of neurotic obsession. It's a natural question. It's the natural longing of the heart to find out well, what, what is really important. Living in ignorance is the greatest pain. We may not necessarily recognize it as that. We may not necessarily be conscious of it, but it is actually so that to be ignorant of truth is really painful. And those of us that have been meditating for a while and been on a few retreats know what it's like when we start to experience the falling away of certainties. Or likewise, people who've lost something dear to them or feel threatened and lost themselves. When the falling away of apparent certainties of life happens and we feel threatened. If we are encouraged in the right way to bring that experience into a here and now awareness. This is so important. Isn't it the case that when we feel threatened that the mind goes into, oh, it's always going to be this way? Or, how can I overcome this? How can I make myself feel safe again? You know, we all have strategies of doing things to make ourselves feel good because we can't stand the feeling of uncertainty. But uncertainty is a fact. And so the Buddhist teaching is based on this. And actually, life is uncertain. It's not a sure thing. So the, one of the aims of meditation is to equip us with the skills so that we can actually encounter this uncertainty. Our minds are really sophisticated and, 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 and capable of incredible feats of denial. We've all observed what denial's like in the outer world when somebody is caught up in some act of abuse, or self-abuse, like alcohol or, or some other substance abuse, and, and, and they refuse to acknowledge it. They're ruining their life and their family's life and ruining their health. And you know, Smoking tobacco is, is a you know, classic. Any of you that have been caught in the habit of smoking tobacco, I have, we actually don't really know what it's like. We don't really, we don't really know what we're doing when we're smoking. It's basically want to get the hit and follow the habit. And you know, the belief is that we'll feel better once we've got the hit. It's the same with all drugs, all addictions, essentially. And so long as we are caught up in getting the hit, then we're caught up in denial. We're not re- seeing the reality. Anyway, we've seen this outwardly, and either in ourselves or in other people. And well, the same thing is going on basically in our own minds all the time. There's this massive denial going on that you know we're getting around as if we're not going to die, and you know, getting around as if thing we're safe when in fact we're not safe. And 
So when whatever it is in life that conspires to take us to the point of losing our assumed security and presumed safety, and we're faced with the great doubt, and faced with uncertainty, if we've cultivated right mindfulness, we've prepared ourselves with here and now awareness, then in our meditation, in our inner work, in our contemplation, we can we can hold the experience. We can receive the body-mind experience of feeling unsafe. And that's not just a coping strategy. You know, this is the Buddha taught, this is the path to insight. This is the path to direct seeing for yourself, for ourselves. If we want to actually free ourselves from being vulnerable to threat all the time, then from the Buddhist perspective, the only possible path to that is clear seeing for ourselves. And the only possible path for cultivating clear seeing for ourselves is to do the work of, of cultivating this watchfulness. So why do we meditate? The meditation is really an exercise in watchfulness, in recognizing that that this is not just something that might happen if you're lucky. Watchfulness or mindfulness or awareness is really what the Buddha held up as a, as a spiritual faculty. And it can be honed down. And if we don't hone it down, well then we're vulnerable to being fooled. We assume all sorts of things about life by the way things appear to be. We don't hold the experience, we don't withhold our assumptions, we dive into the belief that we're conditioned to see. The classic image that's given in the scriptures is, is being terrified at the appearance of a snake on the path ahead of you and it turns out to be a piece of rope. And that terror, you know, any of you have been in Asia and I don't know what you like with snakes, I don't like snakes. Uh, in Australia, this time I was back in Australia and I, you know, I thought I was in New Zealand just kind of walking through the bush and then suddenly I remember I'm in Australia and there's a lot of snakes and I start seeing snakes everywhere and every little noise in the bush, there's got to be a snake. <laughs> and uh, you start seeing snakes all over the place. <laughs> hearing snakes all over the place. We, we can easily assume things and, and feel fear unnecessarily. We can suffer unnecessarily. Well, from the Buddha's perspective, most of our suffering is unnecessary. If we're living moral lives, then, then to get caught up in, in fear, to get caught up in indignation, to get caught up in greed, is actually unnecessary suffering. But why do we get caught up in these things? Why do we get caught up in greed? You know, the, the, the pain of, of always feeding greed, it's, it's so unpleasant to always be agitated. Whether it's gross sensual greed for just wanting to get more things, or whether it's more subtle greed like wanting to know, wanting to understand, or even the you know, subtle greed of wanting to be free from suffering, if we hold that wanting in the wrong way, 
then even the desire to be free from suffering, even the desire to be enlightened, whatever that means, even that desire, if it's being held in the wrong way with greed, even that can just take us to more suffering. And this does happen in meditation. You know, people can let go a lot of kind of coarser, obvious tendencies of greed, and but then the greed for understanding takes over. It's just, I just love knowing. I just love understanding. And I do. I mean, I just love to understand things. I can really get off on it. I get a real rush just when I understand things. And, you know, I love listening to clever people talking about things. It doesn't matter what they're talking about, actually. If they're clever and they really understand something, I can get more understanding. I just love it. Well, that's a kind of mental greed, actually. And if you get caught up in it, then you know, there's, there's, there's a ins- feeling of being insatiable. You just want more all the time. And it's not pleasant. So why do we do it? Well, as with the denial on things like booze or tobacco or weed or whatever habits, addictions people have, you know, we only do these things because we don't really see the consequences. And how are we going to see the consequences of getting caught up in greed? Well, the Buddha suggested that, you know, the only way to do it is by watchfulness. That if we meditate regularly over and over again, then we come to see, you just start to see, aha. As one teacher put it, a thousand times later you catch it sooner. Usually it's the case for a long time, we get fooled by something, say, oh, fooled again, caught in that one again, with indignation or greed or fear of something, you get caught up in some fear of something terrible is going to happen, and only to find out that it was your imagination again, and then all fooled again. Now, if we again haven't trained our minds with understanding, with clarity, with a recognition of the way the mind actually works through consistent watchfulness, then when we keep getting fooled like this, we think, oh, it's always going to be this way. But again, with the practice, with the habit, with the spiritual habit of consistent watchfulness and here and now awareness, we start to see even the idea that it's always going to be this way, that's an apparent reality. Even that we don't have to be fooled by. It's very tricky. It's really tricky. It's really insidious. The, the feeling, it's always going to be this way. But the good news, the wonderful thing is that it is possible if we cultivate sufficient stillness and depth of stillness, depth of listening, depth of seeing, depth of feeling within ourselves, we can start to see in perspective. We can, we can start to see that that idea that it's always going to be this way is just that. It's an idea. It's got a feeling with it, yes. It's got a feeling with it. And it can feel so convincing. But even the tendency that it's so convincing is something that we can feel. We can feel the convincingness of something. You know, like with food, you can feel, if you're mindful, you can feel the seductiveness of it. Like we've been given this, we've been given this bread-making machine, and it doesn't matter how often I smell the smell of baking bread, I just want to eat it. It's just 
that's just so good, that smell of freshly baking bread. And, you, you know, they cook it at all times of the day as well, and it's really difficult. In the evening, you, you walk past the kitchen up to the office and there's this smell of freshly baking bread, and it, it is something... I remember as a kid, I used to get sent down to the little grocer store to get the bread, and time and time again, I would always... You know, you, you know, you, there used to be break the bread in half. There's kind of these old loaves that used to break in half, and no matter how many times I got into trouble, I just couldn't resist breaking half and kind of eating the middle out of the freshly baked bread. It was so tempting, so delicious. And well, that's what you do when you're, you know, nine or ten years old. But when you're forty or fifty or sixty, actually, what we can do is you can just stop. You can sit there outside the kitchen, and you can smell the bread and you can feel the attractiveness you can feel attractiveness one can actually you can say, you can label it attractiveness feeling pulled or somebody was mentioning today about how they feel pulled to watch the news although they actually don't want to watch the news although they know that what's coming across the news is not reliable and not, not good for them there's a feeling of being pulled now if we train our mindfulness, if we train our attention, then we can actually feel this feeling of feeling pulled. And we can feel it with freedom. We're free to feel pulled. We're free to feel repulsed. We're free to feel indignant. And it's my experience that the hunger, the longing that the heart feels is actually the the longing for freedom. One feels hungry for freedom. And meditation is what actually nourishes that hunger for freedom. We can start to intuit, we can start to feel the direction in which that freedom lies. It's not, as I was saying, the freedom to not have these things. It's not necessarily the freedom from ever feeling angry or the freedom from ever feeling greedy. But if in our meditation we discipline attention to be present here and now, free from judgment, then when these tendencies arise, like the feeling drawn, feeling pulled, feeling unsafe, feeling unsure, it's just so. And that's a new experience. It's not an idea. It's a shift in relationship to what was previously an experience that defined us as being, I'm insecure, I'm greedy, I'm angry, I'm resentful, I'm full of desire, I'm this, I'm that. From this deeper perspective, there's a recognition, there's a knowing for oneself that actually this is not what I am. Rather, this is something that's passing through me, if it's anything at all. It's an activity of the heart, it's an activity of the mind. And there's an intuition, a sense, a growing sense, a dawning sense of the freedom to receive, to allow. The freedom to not be pushed around by these things. The freedom to feel desire for freshly baked bread, but not have to pick at it because you feel hungry. Or greedy, and the freedom to feel threatened, the freedom to feel indignant, the freedom to feel unsafe, but not to be defined by it. 
So the question of why meditate? Uh, I think we have to each answer it for ourselves. I think it's wise to ask ourselves that question, why do we meditate? Not to grab for an answer, not to try and have the right answer. But like some of those questions I referred to earlier, it's it's a real question, it's a life question. and, And for me to ask such questions gives our hearts a direction to go in. If we don't give our hearts these directions, if we don't give our heart a direction to go in, the heart can fall prey to other people's directions. People who want us to believe what they believe. So go in this direction, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. Mm. And we we can be intimidated. We can be intimidated by these belief systems. Like the injunction that's right there in the middle of Newcastle, right slap bang in the middle of Newcastle on that church door, hate all evil, love all good. And it's on the door of the church and it's written in red. It's been there for a long time. must be by an expert, somebody who knows. And we could actually go along with it and we could hate all evil and try to love all good. But what happens when we come across evil tendencies in ourselves and we, we end up hating evil? The consequence of hating evil is actually you potentize it. We, we, I gave a talk last week about meeting our anger and mentioned that story about what happens when you automatically turn to using pesticides to kill the bugs that you don't like. You, the bugs end up mutating and so you can't ever get rid of them or or the overuse of antibiotics that that certain doctors are, are unfortunately caught up in, and some other doctors have a mission to try and correct that. You know, the overuse of antibiotics is now one of the biggest causes for for the incurable diseases that that humanity is struggling with, and it's an uninspected, unintelligent, uninformed reaction to something that we don't like. But if we haven't ourselves cultivated a here and now judgment-free awareness and come to recognize for ourselves the dynamic of our own hearts, what's going on when we come across evil, or what comes, what's, coming, what's going on when we come across things we don't like in our own hearts, well then we can be intimidated by what these religious experts tell us. You know, hate all evil and we might go along with it and, and that's really unfortunate. So I would say that... Uh, there's no one answer to the question of why meditate, but I think it's a very good question to ask each of us for ourselves. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> Thank you.